0: Hello and welcome back to Control Alt Delete. This is a replay episode with the amazing Glennon Doyle. We recorded this in the depths of the 2020 lockdown and I was feeling a little bit down in the dumps and I also didn't turn on my microphone properly for this episode so apologies for the quality, but I promise it's still worth it for all of the amazing truth bombs that Glennon drops in this episode. Speaking to Glennon definitely gave me the direction I needed during this time and she is an incredible author. She has written Love Warrior which was an Oprah book club selection. She wrote the New York Times bestseller, Carry On Warrior. And in this episode, we are discussing her newest book called Untamed, Stop Pleasing, Start Living, which went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller and a Reese Witherspoon's book club selection. And very excitingly, Adele herself endorsed this book on Instagram, saying this book will shake your brain and make your soul scream. It's been such a brilliant success and it's a really great message. It's an intimate memoir and it's a galvanizing wake-up call to take charge of your own life. And it's Glennon's story of how she learned how being a responsible mother doesn't necessarily mean giving up who you are for your children, but actually showing others how to truly live and fully live and fully be yourself. It's a call to arms for women to take up more space and to take up the space they deserve. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. And if you haven't grabbed yourself a copy of Untamed yet, make sure you get one and then pass it on to a friend. I hope you enjoy this episode. And here it is.
1: You've been on my dream guest list for, I'm going to say like two or three years. So this moment is here. So thank you so much.
2: I'm honored.
1: Thank you. And I'm just
2: amazed that you want to trust me with your beautiful platform. And I have to tell you that um, I have recently been sent a copy of Olive. And I'll tell you, I got a digital copy. OK, which on the freaking computer, which I usually can't stand reading books on the computer because I love actual books so much. But I was just really curious. So I started And Emma. It's so beautiful. I love what you're saying about women. And it's just really, really wonderful. How
1: is it to um, launch something in the middle of this <laughs> pandemic? Oh, thank you so, so much, because I've been listening to a lot of your work of course the book Mm. but also outside of that around how you've had to adapt your book stuff because Mm. I mean you were kind of gearing up for like these sell-out arenas and obviously you've been able to talk to thousands of people through your own platforms but it's different isn't it and Mm. I suppose even sending you a digital copy makes me sad because all the physical copies are locked up inside HarperCollins so I haven't been able to send them to people so that's been a shame. That is heartbreaking. I am so sorry about that. It is so
2: painful to put your heart and soul and mind into something. And then I just, I see you. I have felt all of what you're feeling over the last couple months. And I know it's hard too because it is such a loss. And then you feel bad talking about the loss because we think, oh, we can't be in pain because so many other people are in, you know, worse pain. And I just, I know what a loss it is. And uh, I see you, sister. And I can't wait to get the physical copy. And when I get the physical copy, I'm going to read every word again so that I can have that actual experience.
1: Thank you so, so much. And um, yeah, I just, I wondered actually, before I asked you my first question I wrote down, do you feel though that in a weird way, this has made your book launch even more special and unique? Because I don't know if this is just a coincidence, but Your book, I think, has come at a time where everyone is turning to things. People need more help. Maybe they need more support. We're all inside feeling a bit lost.
2: Well, I will tell you that when this all first happened, and we just really thought, okay, we were in promotion mode. We were uh, beginning a tour that had been planned for a year. All plans were changing, and our whole team sat down and said, okay. We're going to switch to service. That was like our mantra. We're just switching to service. Everyone's going to be in pain. People are going to need the people they love and trust to show up just in different ways. Just we're going to find ways to show up and we'll switch out of promotion mode into service mode. And at that time, Emma was, we were in a hotel room talking about it, deciding to cancel the entire tour. This was a little earlier on before all of our stay at home orders came. So people were having to make judgment decisions. And my wife, looked at me and was like, this is going to be okay. I'm not just saying we're going to be okay. I'm not just saying the world's going to be okay. I'm saying that something good's going to come out of this for the book. And I didn't believe her because she is a pathological optimist and I don't believe in pathological optimism. Okay. I actually can't stand it. But I do think that in an interesting way, the book has served people where and when they've needed it. And the fact that so many people are trusting my voice at a time like this is a little bit mind blowing. And I am really
1: grateful. Well, I'm really grateful for you because your morning meetings as well have <laughs> been everything. And before we get into Untamed, because obviously I, I want to ask you so much about that, because it's been the most incredible reading experience. but this is more of a personal question I suppose but I'm finding even doing the podcast remotely quite hard because I'm quite a uh, I'm not like touchy-feely to people that don't want that but I feel I love being in the presence of people and that's why I do this podcast I I think is because I love meeting new people and being in the same room as people and having that moment of like the body language and everything but I'm wondering how you and this is probably something that's taking years of practice but every morning you're getting up and you're doing that for people and I just I just wonder how do you get into that mindset every day of being able to share of being able to have that much energy quite frankly to Mm. give to give to everyone each day such a beautiful question
2: I was trying to figure out how I could show up right like all we do in times of crisis is okay what is my little thing that I can do to contribute there's nobody saving the world here so like What is my teeny contribution that I can make? And uh, I I used to be a teacher. I was an elementary school teacher and teaching was just one of the loves of my life. I taught little children and we would have a morning meeting every day. And it was my favorite time of the entire day because it was the time where we'd sit together and actually talk about you know, what was really important, our feelings and what was going on at home and kind of get grounding for the rest of the the day. So that's how I thought about how I thought of doing morning meetings as I remembered what I did with my kindergartners that helped us through. And, And the other part of that, Emma, is that I probably am the exact opposite of you. So your gift is being with people. That's like your comfort zone. I am actually a level 10 introvert (laughs) right? just whatever the scale is like i'm way on the on the other end so and i've always been that way what looks to you like something that is very hard is the thing that's easier for me right which is Mm -hmm. okay i have these ideas and um now i can speak to all these people and connect with them without people (laughs) involved right (laughs) So in situations that you that you do that would look so hard for me, that would cause terror in my heart, it would be easy for you. It's the opposite for me. And, and that's another strange way that doing the kind of what has turned out to be sort of a book tour in a very weird way. I mean, I'm on the uh, internet talking about the book all the time because those are the stories that are in my heart right now. Really has lent itself to my personality more than being out on the road. I mean, that sort of thing strikes terror, Emma. The amount of mental, emotional preparation I have to do to prepare for being on the road in front of audiences of people, even more terrifying is like the meet and greets. Like, it's just for an introvert, it's a different situation. So, Being able to think each day, okay, what do I have to offer? What stories do I have to offer? What ideas of comfort do I have to offer? And then tying it all up in a 15-minute speech. I got that.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes how interesting that we're learning so much about ourselves or things we already knew but they're just being confirmed it's like I thought I was an introvert because I like writing at home by myself but I'm clearly actually not and it's I'm learning these things and I think after all of this we're going to go out into the world with a new perspective on what we like what we don't like what what we get our energy from and that's, that's pretty cool agreed right I want to talk to you about Untamed now congratulations on Mm. such an amazing book I mean you must have known it was going to resonate but it's it's been the book it's the book of this year and everyone I've spoken to has loved it I've sent it to friends in the post because that's I I don't know sending something physical in the post is like the the nearest thing we can do right now I think Mm to like physically being with people and I wanted to ask you first of all about and this is kind of like maybe a geeky writer question but the format of the book is so so unique and and I think that's why I read it so quickly is you've done something incredible with like the pace of it I just wanted to rip Mm. through it and I think I've heard you maybe say before that you knew that actually the structure of the book needed to be slightly untamed as well Mm. and that you did like a previous version that was a bit traditional and you broke out of that as you always do Um, would you be able to share the story of how you got to this format
2: yeah it's so cool and weird to me because the writing of the book followed the same pattern as the rest of my life right I tried it the way you're supposed to do it (laughs) it didn't work same thing with marriage same thing with motherhood same thing with being a woman same thing with religion like I tried it the first way the way that you know you're taught to write a book I knew what the themes were. I knew I wanted to write a book about, you know, social programming and social conditioning and how we are born individuals and wild. And then through necessity, through culture, we are tamed into families, into religions, into nations, into communities. And we lose that self, right? We lose that individuality and that, you know, the first half of our lives is trying to be good trying to do it the right way, trying to do the supposed to's. And then suddenly we just feel like we have to return to ourselves or we're going to waste our lives. Right? So I was writing with that kind of theme, but, and I wrote so much, Emma. And as a writer, you know, like I was writing it and I knew there was no magic in it. I knew the themes were important. And I knew I was writing what I was supposed to be writing about, but I also felt like it kind of sucked. (laughs) (laughs) but, but I was hoping that no one would notice that it sucked. Okay. So what happened is that I, one of my dearest friends is Liz Gilbert. She came to my house for a weekend. Um, one night she said, okay, read to me what you have. And I started reading to her and Emma. Okay. I'm watching, she's laying on the couch and I'm reading and I'm reading and she's sinking deeper, deeper into the couch like she is literally (laughs) sinking okay and I'm like oh shit oh god and she goes stop and she said Glennon when you tell me your stories I come to life when you read me your essays I slowly die (laughs) subtle right subtle and so I had that moment that every artist has where you know you're about to lose every single thing that you've worked on, right? You know it's not it, but you also don't want to go through the tragedy of considering that you've just wasted your time. But I knew she was right. And the reason, I don't take feedback from many people deeply, but I knew that she was right because I already knew she was right. Because <laughs> I already knew yes. what she was telling me, you know? And so what we figured out, through much conversation that night, is that I was writing a book about how to break free from existing structures. And I was writing it in an existing structure, right? That I was writing a book about breaking free and I wasn't breaking free in my writing. The medium had to have the same message as the message. She and I were talking through the cheetah story and I just remember looking at her and saying, oh, I have to write this book like a cheetah running like, I have to write this book so that when people are reading it, they feel like a cheetah running. So it feels like a breathless breathless experience. So it feels just immediate. So it feels like you're reading it with your whole body and not just your mind. Mm. So that night, I threw away. I didn't throw it away. I kept it. And what we know as artists is that none of it's ever wasted, right? That was the foundation of what needed it. I was writing about the book instead of writing the book.
1: Yes. <laughs> it's almost like you maybe had to do that bit first to get yes. to the, the good stuff yes that's incredible that's right. and I, I just find that so uplifting to hear because I think when you are in the community of following other people's work and making your own work sometimes you can follow a trend without realizing that you're following a trend or mm-hmm. you just you can like end up not really doing it your own way and like this is There's no, you know, this is your book. There is nothing Mm. else like it. And I feel like that's sort of the goal, isn't it? That you should do it your own way. And it's just so special. That's so beautiful. My kid,
2: my kid asked me about that the other day. Somebody called her weird. And I was like, babe, I know you don't feel it right now. But one day I can promise you that when someone calls you weird, you're going to realize you're doing the thing. Like that's
1: the goal, right? That's a huge compliment as an adult, isn't it? You want to be weird.
2: (laughs) Yes, it's huge. It means that you're not following the trend. You're not, you know, you're not just life as imitation. You're creating something new. That's the weirdness we're all going for, I think.
1: So I was rereading bits of your book last night and I mean, so many of every single chapter just taught me something new. But I wondered if we could talk a little bit about together the beach house uh, section because I feel like it's so relevant to now. We're all dreaming of going away and we're allowed to do that because we want to probably be free in the outside world. But what you wrote about the beach house is kind of something I think we could all be reminded of right now. That if we're dreaming of something right now that we think we want, is there any way that we can build it into our present day to remain happy and joyful right now? Because we mm-hmm. can't go to a beach house. I'm not going to be able to say it in the same way that you do, obviously. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could just kind of, in a nutshell, just explain what that chapter was about. Yeah, so
2: I think that the
1: um, the gist of that chapter is about
2: a lot of the book is about trusting our desire, right? That women especially are taught that what they want is bad and dangerous. And so they have to squash what they want. And so a lot of the theme of the book is returning to what we want, considering that it could be good and trusting it. Um, And so when I talk like that, it tends to scare people a little bit. And what is often the response is someone will say to me something like, I think the example I used in the book was from a real speaking event that I did. And a woman raised her hand and she said, okay, we can't just all go around trusting what we want. Okay. She said, I want a bottle of Malibu every night. Should I just trust that desire? And my response to that in general and to that woman was like, okay, first of all, no, you shouldn't trust it. And the only reason why I'm telling you that is because you don't trust it, which is why you asked me in the first place. (laughs) Right. So right away good job. You can trust yourself. You already know you don't trust that, that desire. Second of all, I think this really interesting thing happens. And I think it's a result of living in consumer culture. We live in a, in a culture, all of us do that is, we are just mass marketed to Way our world runs and the way our economies run is that a marketer's job in general, I think it's something like it's either 89 or 98. It's something wild. The percentage of messages we hear every single day are from people who are marketing things to us. Okay? Okay. And what a marketer's job is, is to identify a basic human desire or need and then attach a product to it.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: That's not a theory. There are actually people in boardrooms saying, okay, how do we tap into the yearning that's inside people and make them think that the yearning is for this object? Right? So, you know, you want the watch, the fancy watch, because what you really want is to be accepted and to belong. You want what I said to that woman is when you look at your desire for that bottle of Malibu, you can know that it's a surface desire and not your deepest desire because you don't trust it. So let's look at the desire beneath the desire. Okay? when you want the bottle of Malibu, what do we really want? We want a freaking rest. We want Escape from our ridiculous lives. We want to not feel so much pain, right? The desire beneath the desire can be trusted. You actually do need a rest. You actually do need a break. So, how do we tap into the desire? The the, the beach the beach house story, okay? I had this friend who is one of my dearest, and it was also so crappy with money. It can't be believed. I mean, bless her heart. She just, she makes the worst financial decisions on earth. Okay. She knows this. We all know this. Everyone knows this. She came to me. No, no, no. She sent me a link and she wanted to rent this freaking beach house for two months. Okay. No, this is impossible. This is not a good decision. Okay. This desire cannot be trusted given her circumstances. So we're talking it through, we're talking it through. (laughs) Why do you need this? Why do you want this? Why? And she started talking, Emma, and she was, what she got to, when we got to the real, she said, Glennon, I've, I've been on social media, of course, and I'm looking at all of these pictures of these families, of my friends, and they're, you know, whatever, they're frolicking on the beach, they're in their fake nirvana at their beach houses, like They seem to love each other so much. They seem so connected. I just think that if I go there, if I do that, my family will be more connected too. All right. That was the desire beneath the desire, right? So the desire was not actually for the beach house. The desire was, holy crap, I'm scared to death that my family is drifting from each other and I want us back together, Mm -hmm. which is good. That desire can be trusted, right? So... Um, The problem is with surface desires, when we pick an object that represents the thing we want, instead of choosing the thing we want, we get further from the thing we want. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: As a recovering alcoholic, I know that the bottle of Malibu only gets you further from the peace you want. As a compulsive, a recovering compulsive spender, I know that every single time I try to buy my way to peace, I end up further from it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So what we ended up doing with my friend is we said, okay, can we try this before we buy the beach house? Okay, we can buy it next week if we need to. (laughs) But before that, could we try just like finding a basket and putting all of your family's phones in the basket just for dinner time? Like, could we try just for one hour a day to see each other and talk to each other? And I mean, that kind of worked, whatever. She still wanted the beach house. But what I'm saying is... There is a way to constantly look for the desire beneath the desire.
1: And this is a good time for that, right? When we're stuck with ourselves. I wish I'd learned that at school. It would save so much confusion scrolling through Instagram every day. You know, because I think, um, you know, when people say have your own definition of what success means, that's basically kind of I think what we're getting at is You can fall into a trap of being jealous of someone else's life before even getting to the root of what you want. And then you're Mm -hmm. just wasting your time being envious of something you actually don't want at all.
2: I know. Or you do. Like, I actually love jealousy. I
1: have learned to trust jealousy. It's a great emotion to have, isn't it?
2: It's directional. It's informational. Like, when I was wasted all the time, if someone handed me a book that was written by a woman and said, oh my God, Glennon, this is so beautiful. You have to read it. I would not read it, okay? I could not read beautiful words that another woman had written because it was like torture to me. It was like looking directly at the sun. It just like burned me from the inside out. And now I know that that is because there was a part of me that knew deeply that a healthier, braver version of myself could do that, right? Mm. And there's no, there's nothing more painful than watching somebody do the thing that you were meant to do that you aren't doing. It's true. That feeling of envy, I tell my kids all the time, like, if you can sit with it, right? If if you can refuse to feel ashamed of it, because that's what we usually do with all of these emotions. We feel them and then we don't think we should feel them. So we pretend not to feel them. Or better yet, we turn them to what we think is a more acceptable emotion, which is just like snark. That's what I used to do. So I would feel envious, but then I would say things like, whatever, I didn't like her anyway. (laughs) I would make up reasons why she sucked. Okay, (laughs) great plan, great plan. But if you can sit with envy, it actually often turns into like a
1: big red arrow pointing you toward the thing you were meant to do. It's so true. And I'm sure now what's quite amazing about going through all of these feelings in the past is I'm sure that if you see it happen, if you ever see it happen, I don't know, in a comment section somewhere, you can immediately kind of empathize and be like, oh, I used to, like, I get it. You know, yeah. it's, it's understandable sometimes. I just did this
2: thing in a morning meeting the other day. I talked about envy, right? I talked about, oh, somebody said, how do I know if I'm a writer? I think all the time I could be a writer, I might be a writer, but I don't know how how do I know I'm a writer if I'm a writer. And I said, first of all, this reminds me of when I went to my first AA meeting and I looked around the circle and we were all filling out brochures about like you might be an alcoholic if. Like we were trying, still trying to take quizzes to figure out if we are. And I thought, how funny is this? Like we are all literally sitting in an AA meeting circle. Like that's a pretty good clue that you have a drinking problem. <laughs> Right. It's not like often that people are like, oh, I've got 20 extra minutes. I'm just going to go check out this AA meeting and see what's happening. Like if you're sitting in the circle, it's the jig is up. People who have drinking problems don't spend who don't have drinking problems, don't spend all day wondering if they have a drinking problem. Right. Mm-hmm. And people who spend all day wondering if they're a writer are probably a writer. Mm-hmm. Right. My friends who are definitely not artists do not wonder all day if they are. So that was the first indicator. And then the second indicator I told them is envy. Like If you find yourself envious of other writers, excellent clue. And Emma, it was so wonderful because in the comment section, maybe a 100 people were like, oh, my God, I've been so envious of you. And now
1: I know, you know, it's not wrong. It's just a sign. It's so freeing. Yeah. It's so freeing. And it's just exactly, it's like a, like you say, a big arrow, like go there. And the other reason I think your book is very relevant for now is you have many phrases that I think everyone has probably tattooed onto their skin, but one of them is the, we, we can do hard things. Mm. And I know that that is, I guess what I'm saying is like, Uh, my generation especially are often called like sensitive and snowflakes and like Mm -hmm. we have too many feelings and things like that which might be true but there's a resilience to this book I feel like that's what I'm looking for more than ever is someone saying you can do hard stuff (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I don't know whether that was a sort of theme in the book that you wanted to get across Is um I know you talk about your own daughters and like We do need to be resilient because life, life is quite hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that whole like
2: snowflake thing, what I do tend to notice Emma is that the people who rage about sensitive people, that they're not doing hard things, right? That somehow sensitivity is weakness, that those are usually the people who are not brave enough to feel the hard things, Yes. So then they're not separate things. No, they're not. Like usually the suck it up buttercup people are the that what you're hearing in that message is terror that they themselves do not want to slow down, let the snow settle and see the thing at the center, right? Because actually the hardest thing on earth is surrendering to feeling the entire beauty and terror of being human. And what I do believe, which I learned from my sobriety, I spent the first half of my life desperately trying not to feel anything. and That's what addiction was for me. I became bulimic when I was 10. I was a super sensitive kid and I didn't have the skills, the resources, whatever I needed to figure out how to manage that. And so I started numbing very early. And when I got sober, it was a freaking nightmare. <laughs> early sobriety is so terrible and hard. And I went to, um, I think it was my fifth AA meeting and I finally got brave enough to speak and I stood up and I said, my name is Glennon and everything is awful. I feel awful. And my fear is that my problem was not the booze, that my problem is beneath the booze, that I am the problem. I feel like I missed some kind of secret of life that everyone else knows and whatever I missed makes it harder for me than just being human feels harder for me than it looks for everyone else. And that is all. And I sat down this woman came and sat down next to me and I will never forget her because she said, honey, I need to tell you something that someone told me in early recovery. And that is that if you're missing any secret, it's that the secret is that it feels really hard right now, not because you're doing life wrong, but because you're finally doing life right. Right? Wow. Because you're finally feeling all of your feelings. And the thing is that all of your feelings are for feeling, right? Even the hard ones. It's just that feeling pain is so difficult that barely anyone does it. Wow. And Emma, I know that sounds simple, but I am telling you that it rocked me I didn't know that I mean in all of our cultures we are raised in cultures that just worship freaking happiness that, that like I didn't, I thought you were supposed to be happy all the time I didn't know I thought that being human was about feeling happy that happiness and gratitude and joy and all the things were for feeling and that anger and rage and pain and envy and those parts were for numbing and denying and feeling ashamed of right so this idea that no 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 Actually, not only can you feel those hard feelings and they won't kill you and they won't consume you. But actually, if you want to be fully human, if you want to fully participate in this experience we're having down there, you're required to.
1: And it can feel weirdly good, can't it? After you feel the thing like I um, have been doing this thing, which I'm calling going for a sad run where I put really sad music on and I go for a run and I just, and I like, I just lean into it and feel it. But then ironically afterwards, I feel, I feel like I was meant to have done that and it felt good afterwards. It's weird.
2: It's so weird. But why is it weird? It's because it, it feels weird because we've been taught not to do that, that that's like being too sensitive or that's being a snowflake or that's whatever. But it's a crucial part of the human experience, right? I mean, I have this, because I was such a sensitive kid, Emma, I was, my entire life from 10 to 25 was diagnoses and therapist appointments and medication. And I I actually ended up going to a mental hospital my senior year. And so my narrative about myself forever was I'm crazy. All right. I, and I'm talking about till a few years ago. Okay. I was a public person. I was doing all the things. I was a writer. I was an activist. I was a wife. And I still at the very base of me was like, I'm crazy. And I'm just like covering that up really well. Okay. And then I started raising this little girl, Tish, who is, I think a lot like I was as a child, um, super sensitive, big feelings, And what I've noticed about, I put the story in the book because I think it just says so much about the subject you just brought up, the snowflake phenomenon, which is Tish, um, her teacher called me from school one day and she was in kindergarten. And she said, Glennon, we have an issue. I said, I bet we do. So this is what happened. I may have mentioned to the children at circle time that the polar bears are losing their homes because the ice caps are melting. As of global warming, she said. Glennon, the rest of the class felt sad about that, but they were able to soldier on to recess. Okay, Tish is still sitting on the carpet, crying, right? Asking question after question. She's okay. Emma, our family's entire life became polar bears for several months. Okay, posters on the walls. I had to sponsor four polar bears online. Just polar bears, polar bear. I, I got to the point where I hated polar bears. Okay and one night i was putting tish to bed and she said mommy it's the polar bears and i said oh my god no and she said <laughs> and she said mommy it's just that it's the polar bears now but nobody cares so soon it's going to be us and then she went to bed and i was like oh my god oh and I, she's freaking right. Of course she's right. And I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, oh, okay. You're not crazy to be brokenhearted about the polar bears. The rest of us are batshit crazy for not being broken about the hearted about the polar bears, right? Yes. And that's when this thing comes into very clear focus, which is that in most cultures, throughout time, the sensitive ones have been. They've been identified early. They've been set apart as like a little bit eccentric, but crucial to the tribe's survival because these are the people who can hear things that other people won't hear and feel things that other people are not willing to feel. Mm -hmm. Right? So these are the shaman and the the medicine men and women and the artists and the clergy and the poets and on and on. But in our culture, we are just so hell bent on efficiency and um, speed and progress at any cost that sensitive people are dangerous to that system because they slow it down. Right? Because they're the we ones need that, those people. We need them. Yeah. Right. So that's why it makes me laugh, Emma, every time somebody brings up that snowflake thing. Like, oh God, you're so confused. Right? The opposite of sensitive is not brave. The opposite of sensitive is insensitive. Okay, this mm. is not a badge of honor.
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> it's so true. And it's so it's so strange when um if you're a writer and most writers have a lot of feelings, you it's almost like the, the feelings get you down, but then they're the superpower that allows you to even do that job. And so they're a blessing.
2: Yeah. The sensitivity that led me to into addiction is the exact sensitivity that I use now. That makes me a good writer. Yeah. Right. And my anxiety, I'm why well, call it my fire. My therapist calls it anxiety, but that's what makes me a really good activist. Mm yes we are these deeply feeling people you know no problem in the world can be healed but unless it's sensed first right so the yeah. people that can sense they're the canaries in the coal mine yes right tish is a prophet <laughs> absolutely absolutely absolutely
1: yeah. yeah oh thank you so much i have so much more to ask you but But I'm keeping it, I'm going to keep it to the length that people like. I wanted to leave it on a really lovely positive as well. Um, Around the success of the book, I saw that you posted on your Instagram recently about the independent bookshops and like how they've been really enjoying selling this book and the community that it's basically not just the book and the reader. There's like these people in between who are such an amazing part of the publishing community. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and how and maybe what we can do to help right now in terms of buying books.
2: Yeah, it makes me so excited. I just actually saw this story that someone sent me from an independent bookstore. in I don't know where it was, but um, they had this chain going with Untamed. So every single person that called or ordered the book, it was already paid for by the person before them. So it was like this chain oh, wow. of pay it forward, pay it forward, pay it forward. I thought that was so cool. You know, I just as an introvert, as a sensitive human, as a reader, as a writer, I feel deeply passionately about bookstores, <laughs> right? I mean, they're, it just feels like to me, some of the only places left on earth that are just really community-based and are really exist to serve and bring people together around good ideas. And I just find, I, I believe that their survival in this time is just crucial. It's just I
1: so agree. Important. They're the best.
2: Oh my God. I mean, if I feel safe in one place, it's my couch in, in a independent bookstore. Right? Yes. Preferably run, probably run by women.
1: Yeah. The <laughs> amount of bookstores I've just wandered <laughs> around during those brokenhearted moments in life. It's like my mm. inner compass is like, go to a bookstore now.
2: Exactly. So I just feel, um, I know there are easier places to order books, but I'm just really encouraging people to find their, lo- we've actually put together on Untamed Oh God, what is it called? Untamedbook.com, I think it's called why my my team went together and like searched bookstore, independent bookstores to try to make it easy. Just find one local to you because I feel like it's not, it's a double service, right? You order the book, you get it into your heart, but then you also support a, a, a business that we really need to survive and it, I know right now that every single order is making a difference so yeah that's my dream is that everyone will buy the book but that they will buy it from their independent bookstores Yes,
1: yeah. oh amazing thank you so so much Glennon this has been such a joy and I hope that our paths will cross again one day I really hope so but um thanks for this book and thanks for everything that you do thank you Emma
2: thank you, thank you. I'm gonna get back to Olive so excited thank oh, you Bye-bye. thank you so so much